Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to GranthamChurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This morning, our scripture lesson is Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. This morning, you're going to need to depend on your own Bible or a Bible in the back of the pew. We have not had this on an overhead. So please get with the person that has a Bible if you don't have one. Take one off the back of the pew. Use yours. Get out your cell phone. Hey, if I can have the Bible on my cell phone, any of you can, right? Um, Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, The Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. Let's pray together. Guide us, Lord, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I remember years ago, leaving the optometrist's office on Main Street in downtown Mechanicsburg with a new set of eyeglasses. I thought I was seeing the world pretty well. I was a baseball umpire in those years. (laughs) Why are you laughing? Um, I prided myself on my excellent distance vision. But as I walked down Main Street, that morning with new eyeglasses, the words on the signs down the street that were just a blur a few minutes before, I could now see sharply. 
Indeed, driving home, I looked at the distance, and I could actually see individual trees on the top of the South Mountain at the horizon. My view of the mountain and of the world was clarified or transfigured. In a similar way, the vision of the disciples who were with Jesus on that mountain was clarified so they could see Jesus as he actually is. Perhaps it was not too much, so much that Jesus was transfigured as that the eyesight of his disciples had been changed. For a while, they gazed at the glory of Jesus for the first time. The glory, but that glory was quite different from what they had seen, how they had seen him before. Indeed, the word glory doesn't even appear in this passage. Although Jesus' unique form of glory comes through very clearly. The passage begins with Jesus' transfiguration itself in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. And I'm going to read that again because that's the actual transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes were as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, Matthew's gospel records that the transfiguration of Jesus occurred six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is indeed the Messiah in chapter 16. And yet there may be an allusion here to the tradition, the Jewish tradition, that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai after six days of preparation. In any case, present with Jesus on the mountain are Peter, James, and John. Jesus' inner circle, representatives of the 12 disciples. The three, along with Peter's brother Andrew, were the first disciples that Jesus called. They had been business partners in the fishing industry, and they now still are partners, albeit in a very different kind of ministry, a business. They're part of a small support group for Jesus' ministry. Perhaps like the small support group that supports you in your faith and in your ministry. Pastors David and Kelly have been encouraging us to join a small group. Amy and I have actually been in a small group for about 50 years. Not the same one. But the people in our groups have been a source of strength to us at crucial times. Here Jesus takes three of his most intimate disciples and ascends up to the mountain to pray. As he prays, his appearance changes. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Verse 1 also says that this transfiguration took place on a high mountain, which is where divine revelations usually happen in the Bible. Mount Tabor is the traditional site of the transfiguration, but it's more of a hill than a high mountain. It may have been Mount Hermon, which is close to Caesarea Philippi, where the, Jesus and his disciples were in the previous passage, 
But it's not likely that Jewish scribes would have followed Jesus all the way out to this Gentile territory where Mount Hermon is located. Some suggest Mount Meron, which is the highest mountain in Israel. But it's not, it's not really a good convincing reason to choose it. But verse 1 of the passage says, Jesus took them up on the mountain privately by themselves, which may be the reason why we don't know what mountain this was. But let's assume that the tradition is correct and that this is Mount Tabor. Let's just assume that. When people talk about visiting the Mount of Transfiguration, they're talking about Mount Tabor. One commentator has described Mount Tabor as a large round, you might want to put it up up there if you've got it, a round, large round hill in central Galilee. When you go there today with the tour group, you have to get out of your bus and take a taxi to the top. People say that God is especially pleased with Mount Tabor taxi drivers because more praying goes on in a few minutes hurtling up and down the narrow road in those cars than in the rest of the day or even a week. But the stunning view from the top of the mountain makes the trip worthwhile. Nevertheless, Jesus' followers are more impressed with another view on the mountain, the view of Jesus being transfigured before them. You can, take it. You can go back now. The parallel of this account is Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus. Those in the Philatian Sunday School class have been studying the giving of the law in Exodus. They will remember that Moses ascended Mount Sinai accompanied by his brother Aaron, God's voice spoke through a glorious cloud that covered the mountain. Moses came down the mountain with two tablets, and when Moses descended, his face shone from this intimate encounter with God. Notice the similarities between the transfiguration and Moses going up the mountain. Jesus is the new Moses. The emphasis in Matthew's gospel is on Jesus being greater than the supreme lawgiver, Moses. And in addition to the allusions to Moses, the prophet Elijah is also focused in Matthew's account of the transfiguration. Remember, Elisha won a contest with the prophets of Baal on another mountain, right? What mountain was that? Oh, my. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay, sure, Carmel. Good, thank you. You're all a little slow. Um, perhaps because Elijah demonstrated the superiority over the prophets of Baal, he's called the greatest of Israel's prophets. Together, Moses and Elijah symbolize the law and the prophets. And because both were taken up to heaven without dying, they were thought to be preserved alive so that they could return when the Messiah comes. But both Moses and Elijah, and both Moses and Elijah do have roles in the coming kingdom, but they're the forerunners only. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is a greater lawgiver than Moses and a greater prophet than Elijah. Jesus' glory far surpasses the glory of Moses and Elijah, the most glorious leaders of the nation of Israel. Matthew emphasizes the glorious context of Jesus' transfiguration more than the other Gospels. Verse 2 of Matthew 17 says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes were as white as light. 
Was this Jesus' resurrection body? Some people think that it's a confirmation of Jesus' divinity. He's shown like God. Three disciples are privileged to gaze on the glory of Jesus. In verse 4, the disciple's spokesperson, Peter, says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter's making both a comment and a suggestion. The comment, he comments on how good it is to be there, expressing an appropriate contentment from an all-too-human disciple. And there's nothing wrong with Peter's feeling here. It indeed is good for them to be there, to witness the glory of Jesus. But then Peter impulsively suggests that they may, he would make three booths, dwelling places for each of the heavenly beings, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Mark's gospel says Peter didn't know what he was saying. And Peter often spoke before he thought, like we often do. Peter's suggestion is made as Moses and Elijah are departing, so it may be an attempt to hold this blessed momentary epiphany for longer. We understand that. Have you ever had a time in your life when it just, you had a wonderful spiritual experience in which it seemed like heaven came down to earth? You wished it would never end? We can identify with Peter. He wanted to stay on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. To that end, Peter volunteers to construct tents, which recall the Israelites living in booths as they wandered through the wilderness, an experience that the Jews celebrate by constructing tents and living in those tents at Sukkot, or the Festival of Booths. When Amy and I taught Sunday school, junior high Sunday school, here at Grantham years ago, one Sunday we brought blankets and paper to cut out into leaves to cover the chairs and make booths for the students to celebrate the Feast of Booths. When we announced what we were going to do, simultaneously, Two people in the class. One of them said, great, let's go. The other one said, oh, I should have stayed in bed this morning. For any of you in that Sunday school class, you might have been. I think, yeah. Um, Peter's allusion to the festival indicates that he caught part of the significance of Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus' connection to Israel's salvation history. And Peter's suggestion is not completely off the mark. Even though... It isn't quite the right need to address at this point. What use, after all, will tents be if Peter's thinking of the temporary booths that they set up for the Feast of Tabernacles? And yet, Peter probably has in mind more permanent dwellings, structures made of stones and branches and grass that workers made to protect the watchmen in the vineyards from the sun. The point is, Peter wants to stay on the mountain and to make this moment last forever. Nevertheless, the proper way to serve Jesus is not to remain on the mountain, but to listen to him. That's what we learn in verse 5, when Peter is interrupted by a theophany, a vision of God. While Peter's still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, 
whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. At this point, God or the voice of God enters the scene. A cloud appears, a terrible cloud, which overshadows them and terrifies the disciples. This cloud recalls the cloud that guided the Israelites by day on their way out of Egypt. It also recalls the presence of God in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's also the cloud that appeared at the dedication of the temple in the Old Testament. And the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus will finally return on a cloud that represents God's presence. The message delivered by the voice out of the cloud in verse 5 is exactly the same declaration that God made at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. The voice affirms God takes delight in Jesus. And because the cloud symbolizes the presence of God, the voice from the cloud is the Word of God. And perhaps the most important element of that declaration of God about Jesus is listen to Him. According to verses 6 to 8, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. When the disciples hear the voice of God, they fall down, terrified. That is an appropriate response to the presence of God. Holy fear. When I taught at Messiah College, a student submitted to the class his painting of God. It seems almost blasphemous to paint a picture, not of Jesus, but of God. And when he uncovered that painting, the students spontaneously gasped. That is the appropriate response to the presence of God, a holy fear. But Jesus then touched them and overcame their terror and also consecrated them to obedient service. Like then he tells them to get up, like when he healed the sick or raised the dead. And then Jesus says what is said in the Gospels to most persons who are afraid or terrified. God's, God says, Jesus says, do not be afraid. So why are Christians so afraid of everything today? Perhaps because they have not seen Jesus, who is God's selfie, according to Pastor David. I love that. Jesus is God's selfie. Why should we fear when we have seen Jesus? When the disciples look up, they see no one except Jesus. The original adds the word only at the end of verse 8. For emphasis, they saw Jesus only. In light of Jesus, Moses and Elijah fade away. According to verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection will make the transfiguration clear. Although it's not evident in our Bible version, the phrase, what you have seen, translates the word vision. Although the transfiguration is a vision to the disciples, 
The Gospel writers are clear that Moses and Elijah are not mere figments of a visionary trance. They are personally present. And yet the vision is not permanent. The disciples are redirected from the mountain of transfiguration into the world. Go back to work. But verse 10 introduces a strange and surprising question. Where did this come from? The disciples ask him, why then do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? When I first read that this time, I thought, where in the world does that come from? The disciples assume that Elijah must come before Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. In other words, Jesus can't be the, um, Jesus can't be the Messiah that the transfiguration revealed him to be because Elijah has not come yet. Where did they get that idea? Well, they actually got it from the prophet Malachi, who proclaimed that God would send Elijah the prophet to prepare the people before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Malachi 4.5. A legend about Elijah suggested because he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, he had not died properly, and therefore he would return. The disciples believed that Elijah would come before the Messiah. But here Jesus' disciples are talking to Elijah, who's the one to come. Is this the coming of Elijah? What gives here? Well, the answer is in verses 11 to 13. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But they have done to him everything that they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, I am not sure how the disciples came to that conclusion, but they are correct. Elijah must come before Jesus the Messiah can die and rise from the dead to inaugurate his kingdom. But what the disciples had not known before is that Elijah had already come in John the Baptist. Now, that's sort of puzzling. Let me illustrate, okay? with a story adapted from my experience on the, Broad State, on the Broad Street subway station in Philadelphia. As I stood at the wall between the platforms of the express train and the local train, the local train would drop me off at Messiah's Philadelphia campus. The local train would come shortly after the express train. But I stood at the platform waiting for the express train and the local train came instead. I asked the attendant, where's the express train? He said, oh, that already came. Well, you weren't paying attention over there behind the wall. Now, what happened with the people in Matthew's narrative is like that. They were looking for Elijah as a forerunner of the Messiah, and instead Jesus the Messiah came because they didn't recognize Elijah had already come. Elijah was the John the Baptist to come. Why did they not recognize him? Here my metaphor of the subway station in Philadelphia sort of breaks down. Jesus' disciples assumed that John would violently beat everyone into shape in preparation for the Messiah. Instead, as a preview to the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be, John was arrested and Herod executed him. Similarly to the forerunner John, Jesus will be crucified at the hands of his oppressors. What kind of glory is that? 
The passage right before our scripture lesson, Matthew 16, 21 and following, Jesus predicts he must be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. In verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in the mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Faithfulness to Jesus, not fame and popularity but the world's standards, prepares for the coming of Jesus' kingdom. Faithfulness even to the point of death is the glory of both John the forerunner and Jesus the Messiah. So what does this passage teach? How do we listen to Jesus? The vision affirms that Jesus is the Son of God and it allows us to gaze on the glory of Jesus, God's Son. But the glory of Jesus is different from what we expect. Jesus is glorified through suffering, like Elijah, like John the Baptist. N.T. Wright says, Jesus' glory here on the mountain contrasts with his shame when he's crucified outside the, hill, outside the city of Jerusalem. Here, his clothes shine brightly. At the cross, soldiers gambled for them. In the transfiguration, Jesus is flanked by Moses and Elijah. At the cross, he's beside two criminals. Here, the bright cloud covers the scene. On the cross, violence, darkness covers the whole earth. Here, the voice announces who Jesus is. At the cross, a pagan soldier declares in surprise, surely this was the Son of God. Paradoxically, Jesus shines gloriously through his suffering and death. Jesus' transfiguration reveals his glorious power. His crucifixion reveals the shocking glory of Jesus when he says, follow me to the cross, which is a glorious thing. Jesus' death brings exaltation. The voice of God in verse 5 addresses the disciples. They learn the identity of Jesus directly from God, and then God commands them, listen to him, obey Jesus. After God speaks, the vision fades. Moses and Elijah disappear. The disciples are again alone with Jesus. The passage ends in a quiet, anticlimactic tone. The narrator reports that the three disciples and Jesus keep silent about what they've just seen and heard. They tell no one about God's legitimation of Jesus. So what are we to do if not to blaze aloud the news of the kingdom of God? N.T. Wright continues, the timetable of what God is doing in the world is going ahead. If we want to play our part in it, we must follow where Jesus himself leads along the way of the cross, the way of self-renunciation, the way of service. After all, the most important event in the timetable has already happened. Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Our task 
is to find our role and vocation in following Jesus and helping his light to gloriously shine throughout the world. Amen.